this quarter we're studying not just something about God or something that God does, but who God actually is, the very nature of God, the essence and being of what makes God, God, the doctrine of God. And uh, in this particular part of the series, we started last week with part one of the Trinity, Come Let Us. We found that phrasing rooted in the Old Testament scripture. And today we continue on with that same examination of the Trinity doctrine. We're going to be going to Genesis chapter 1 in just a moment, so I want to give you a heads up so you can start going there yourselves. Uh, hopefully every text that we go to is a text you can go to as well. But just as a quick form of review, what we saw outlined in the Old Testament, alluded to, hinted at, strongly suggested a trinity, though there is no statement in the Old Testament talking about Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It does not outline that. But it does whittle us down from the, remember that spectrum of belief about God, from atheism of no belief in God to pantheism on this side where everything is God. That what the Bible teaches is that God, though being one God, is in plural, and we're going to see today specifically three persons of the Godhead. And so last Sabbath, we looked at that from the Old Testament. And again, you're not going to find that boom, 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 God the Father, God the Son, the Holy. But you see, for instance, starting with Genesis 1, let us. Then we go to the Tower of Babel. Let us go down. And then there's holy, holy, holy. There's reference to plurality. Even the word God, Elohim, is not a rigid singularity, but it's a unity of beings. And so we want to explore that further into God's Word as we go now into the New Testament. But of course, before we do any study of God's Word, we need to start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you that it's a Sabbath day, and thank you that we can fellowship together. And now, as we study your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit be sent, the same one that inspired its writing, to now inspire our understanding and our thinking, guide our minds to see God more clearly. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in Genesis chapter 1, and just as a quick form of review... The Bible, in the very first book, the very first chapter, the very first verse, starts this explanation of God. In fact, it doesn't, it just starts stating things about God. It introduces us to God right off the bat, which, of course, the Bible should do that. (laughs) It's God's book about himself, and it says right there, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, whom? God. And what's the, did what? What's the action verb? Created. You see, you're introduced to God as a creator, And as he creates something in his image, we go down to verse 26, we find this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And of course, he makes man as male and female, a plurality, which in Genesis chapter 2 would come together as one flesh, yet be two distinct persons. And he said, that is in the image of us. That is who we are and us. As God, as God singular, one what, God, but plural, whose, let us. So we're introduced in Scripture in the Old Testament to God as creator and plural. So now we go to the New Testament. We're going to go to the book of John. Of course, the New Testament starts with four parallel books of the Bible, each introducing us to God made flesh, Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. 
In the beginning of John's Gospel, here at the beginning of the New Testament, introducing us once again to God, notice the striking similarities to the introduction of God in the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament starts with God as creator saying, let us make man in our image, plurality. Now we go to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, where do you think he lifted that phrase? From Genesis chapter 1, and from the beginning, that's right. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and of course all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are introducing us not to just God in a general sense, but specifically the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And here he calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and notice this now, and the Word was with God. So if you stop right there, you would have God over here, and you would have the Word. And they're together, they're with each other. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But then the next statement says, and the Word was God. So already, there's, what you have is an introduction to God as plural, yet at the same time, one. Then it goes on in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. He was with God in the beginning, verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, think about that. Here in the New Testament, introducing us to to God, we have the same formula as we had in the Old Testament, introducing us to God. You have God as creator, plural. Let us, God was with, he was with God and was God at the same time. It's fascinating. Both testaments of Scripture open up with an introduction of God with the same three characteristics. There's God, and he's a creator, and he works as a plural. Fascinating. Now, let's dig a little deeper. Go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, at the beginning of his gospel, as he introduces Jesus, in fact, as Jesus is being introduced in his life, in his public ministry, because you recall that Jesus was not just born as a fully mature adult. He was born as a baby, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. At a certain point in the fulfillment of time, he stepped forth and began his public works. Right? And here, at his baptism, the Gospel of Matthew records what happens. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, I'm I'm not going to try to break this down too, but I want to make clear. Him is Jesus, yes? And the Spirit was in the form of a dove, and it came down from heaven, and it alighted upon him. There's movement. Open heaven, dove came down, lights on him. So Jesus is not the dove, right? Those are separate things goes on. Now, verse 17, and suddenly a voice came from where? From heaven. So the dove, heavens opened up, the dove descends in the light. So there was, apparently there was God in heaven, the Spirit of God, but comes down in the form and lands on Christ. So here we have Christ in the water, comes up out of the water. The Spirit comes down and connects with him, alights on his shoulder. But apparently up in heaven, something God is still going on, correct? Look at the text. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. 
in whom I am well pleased. Now, by implication, if that was his son, who is that one? The father. This is my son, says the father. So you have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit all present at the same time, at the same place, yet individuals doing different roles, having different responsibilities. Okay? All with the same task, all with the same purpose, but each doing a different aspect of that chore. Does that make sense? So you have three distinct beings, and what's fascinating about this is here we have another introduction. Here Christ is being introduced in his life, in his public ministry, and once again you have God as plural. He said, this is my son. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Father says the voice. All three are there. Now, go to the other end of Matthew, chapter 28. At the conclusion of Jesus' ministry on earth, I want to be careful to always say Jesus' ministry on earth. It definitely was not the conclusion of Jesus' ministry. (laughs) Jesus is still ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. Amen? But at the close of his earthly ministry, just like in the beginning of his earthly ministry, he begins it with baptism, and you have the plurality of God. And now, not just alluded at with let us, now we have distinct, there's the voice in heaven, there's the dove alighting, there's the sun in the water. You have three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now look what Jesus does. As he's ready to go back into heaven to continue his ministry there, people are supposed to continue his ministry on earth in his behalf. Those people are the apostles, yes? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now, by the way, why did Christ need to be baptized? Was it for the remission of sins? Of course not. It's for an example of for those who would be baptized, right? Just as I have done, you do now. Baptizing them, and how does he say to do it? In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Fascinating is, so when Christ was introduced in his ministry, the Trinity was clearly present. Now, when he says, now go tell other people, go and make disciples, make other followers, introduce them, baptize them, join them into the fellowship of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Both baptism bookends of Christ's life and ministry center on this concept of the Trinity of a plural God, singular God, plural beings, we should say, okay? So if you put the evidence together, even just so far, you'd see the very beginning of Scripture, the very first page, let us. As creator God, let us. Then, in the New Testament, the introduction to God again in the form of Jesus Christ is the creator God who is with God and at the same time is God. Then Christ is introduced in his earthly ministry with the Father speaking, the uh, the Spirit alighting, and the Son being baptized, the plurality of God again as he begins his ministry. And then as he leaves and has others continue his ministry, he bids them to do the exact same thing, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And let me ask you, think about this logically, because I know there is current agitation in the church, hopefully not too much, and hopefully this will help, but that each member of the Godhead is kind of being questioned. For instance, God the Father, is he the same in the Old Testament as the New Testament? Is he actually the fulfillment of God, or is Christ the loving part? Is he, only a, is he just the mean and justice and administrative part, and Jesus is love and lambs and children and, and, you know, those kind of things? Then you have Christ. Was he actually God all the way from eternity? 
or was he at some point created? Question about. And the Holy Spirit, is he even a person at all? Is he just a force? Is he a, 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 some sort of spiritual thing, a presence, an all-pervasive something, you know, but not a person, not an individual, just the power of God that's referred to, no, especially, look at this, by the way, notice that God here, according to Jesus Christ, shares the same name, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If you introduce something like that, hi, these are the apostles, Peter, James, and John, you wouldn't say, ah, Peter's a person, James is a person, and John is kind of, uh, you know, you don't do that when you list off something. You list three things, and it implies that they're the same thing, right? You have three things listed, same thing. And, the, and by the way, they share a name. I don't share a name with a non-entity, with a non-being. You share a name with people, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, one God, but three persons. Interesting thought. As we go, by the way, the apostles were apparently quite faithful to that triune picture of God because all throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see continual, repeated references, what the technical term is, triadic references, in the New Testament scriptures. Now, they don't often come out and formulaically say, God is this and this and this, but they'll make reference in the same passage to each member of the Godhead having a part to play in one work. For instance, let's just look, and literally there are dozens of these, and you're welcome, we're not going to go through each one. All right, we should have heard an amen. That's okay. First Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to go through several, enough to get the picture. And if you want to go home and look up more, go for it. In fact, just read the New Testament and watch with new eyes as you see the reference to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit whom he sent. I mean, all over the place. First Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes what I have to assume is his first letter, to the church of Corinth, starting with verse 4. And notice how he talks about gifts that God will give, called spiritual gifts. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Kind of the same way the Old Testament refers to going into the presence of God, saying, holy, holy, holy. Here you have the Spirit and the Lord and God all in all. Same gifts. Fascinating. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians. We're building a case here. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, how the Apostle Paul signs off on this letter to the church in Corinth. You say, well, that one wasn't exactly specific. Let's take a look at this final line in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in the same way you bring people into the faith, he says you greet people, you, you bless them. This idea that God be with you is not just a vagary. He says it's God the Father and there's the Son and there's the Holy Spirit. That same formula that he sent the apostles out with, Paul keeps in his mind. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. We're going to go to chapter 2, back in the T section of the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and verse 13. 
Again, verses 13 and 14 here. Paul uses some complicated grammatical structure in his sentences, okay? Complicated sentence structure. But follow what he's saying here. Verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice that the preaching of the gospel and the bringing us into into, uh, into harmony with heaven and giving us salvation apparently is not just the work of God. It was the plan of God through sanctification of the Spirit to believe in Jesus Christ. So they all have a different role to play, just like in creation. If you were to go back, you'd find the Spirit hovering in the water. Let us make man in our image. They work together for the work of creation in the same way they work together for us in the work of redemption. It's not like just Jesus saves us, friends. God saves us, and Jesus plays a very important role in that. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is part of our saving agency through God. And God the Father, all of them that work together, and thus in the New Testament you see the picture that it's not just the Spirit, it's not just Christ, and it's not just God in a nebulous sense, but each one plays a specific part. Let's go to the book of Revelation. This is one of my favorites. Because you might say, well, that's just Paul, everything. Well, anytime you do a New Testament study, most of what you're going to read is Paul because he wrote most of the books, okay? But let's go to the book of Revelation, not written by Paul, but written by John. John chapter 1, as he introduces this book, of course, originally it was a letter sent out to seven churches in Asia Minor. And it starts in verse 4. He writes this greeting. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from. He's like, I'm writing it, John, and I'm writing on behalf of and from And you would expect a person, maybe God, or maybe Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? But watch this. Grace to you and peace from him him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, we'll come back in a minute and do a fun little way to demonstrate that that's the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, you could just say, you know, Revelation uses a lot of colors and numbers and symbols, And it never uses the phrase Holy Spirit, but repeatedly says the seven spirits, okay? And if you watch the function, you say, aha, that's a correct reference to the Holy Spirit. But we'll demonstrate that momentarily. But we have grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. But even right there, you can see he who was and is and is to come is on his throne, and the seven spirits are before his throne, okay? Now, we go to verse 5, and... From whom? From Jesus. So neither of those two are Jesus. Does that make sense? You have the one on the throne, you have the one before the throne, the Spirit, and now you have Jesus, and it describes Jesus. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 4, and I'll try to do this briefly, it's one of my favorite studies, and you might have heard it before, but I just really like it. In Revelation chapter 4, we also, by the way, find the New Testament parallel to what we saw in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah is saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see the same song sung in Revelation chapter 4. But I want to back up and go to verse 2. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2, John is shown a vision of the heavenly sanctuary. 
And here's what he sees, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he sat there, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, so remember you had the introduction from him who was and is and is to come, and the spirits who were before his throne. Now we have the seven spirits again before his throne. So there's the one on the throne, there's the spirits ministering before the throne. And we could go on, and of course they're singing in verse 8, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And my question is, if you were to read through chapter 4, where is Jesus? He's not in chapter 4. You might say, oh, that kind of throws a hole in the... No. No, 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 let's go to chapter 5. See, what you do with the Scripture, when you don't understand something, you keep reading. Keep reading is always the key. Chapter 5 and verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So you have the picture of God the Father on his throne, and now we know something additional about him. He has, he's holding this sealed document. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it to open the scroll or to look at it, which we're going to pick this up in about three sermons, but what is that implying about God the Father, that he's not worthy to open a scroll? I'm going to let that one fester for a while, but we need to think. Verse 4, John's response, so I wept much. By the way, the, the weeping that in the Greek there is not like the, man, I just cried all day. It was like wailing, like distraught. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open, the, and, to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb, capital L, as though it had been slain. Friends, who is the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the lamb that was slain? This is Jesus Christ, who was not there in chapter 4, now appears in chapter 5. Question is, where's he been? Well, what, what kind of evidence does he have on his body? He's a lamb, not just a lamb pure and undefiled, but a lamb looking as though he has been slain. This is mission accomplished. He's returning home. Now watch this. A lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and now they're not ministering before the throne. Look at their change of location. What have they done? Now that Christ has returned to heaven, what happens to the spirits of God? Sent out into all the earth. Friends, what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is the heavenly perspective of the day of Pentecost, where Christ returns, he ascends to his Father, wait in Jerusalem for the gift my Father has promised, right? So that when the Father receives him as the Lamb slain, he shows him the evidence, then the go signal is sent, and now he sends another comforter, 
and the Apostle Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, what you see and hear, this fire and the, and the wind and the rushing and the speaking, this is, this is the evidence that Jesus is now at the right hand of God. It's a powerful thought that we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally working for our salvation, but each playing a distinct and different role from the other. It's a powerful thought. Now, we're going to roll up our sleeves and go even deeper. If we've established that in the Old Testament there is allusion to, there is reference to, but not clear delineation of a plurality of God, or at least no clear delineation of Trinity, yet in the New Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, over and over and over. So the entire Testament of Scripture, by the way, we're in Revelation now, we started in Genesis. All the way through, from the beginning to the end, the Scripture tells that God works as a plurality. Now the question is, why? Why is God not just a rigid singularity who sometimes dresses up as the sun and sometimes, but why is it important? Because I don't want to just leave this, you know, as this great ethereal, cloudy, sky, misty kind of thing. Like, ooh, that was fun to look at, but you leave having no practical application. What difference does it make if God is three persons or one? I think it makes a tremendous difference. Let's go to 1 John. Let's go to the book of 1 John. And the same author who wrote Revelation earlier wrote 1 John chapter 4, and he discusses the very nature of God. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. In fact, we'll start with verse 7. 1 John is a very handy little book for so many reasons. 1 John, you know, chapter 3 and verse 4 gives you the definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 gives us the definition of God. Two very, very important concepts in all of Scripture are rooted there back to back in the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, probably you have a tune go through your head when you read verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, why does he say to love one another? Besides, it's just a nice thing to do, or you should, or it's more effective if you're going to get the gospel out. Why does he say this? Notice his reason is rooted in the very essence of who God is. Beloved, let us love one another for this reason. For love is of what? God. If we claim to be of God, and he is a God of love, then we must also be love. Okay? Watch this now. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then he goes in verse 8 to the opposite of that. He who does not love does not know God. And here's the reason why. For God is what? Love. This is a huge statement. He's not just saying that God is lovely, like to look at and beautiful and And he's not just saying he's loving from time to time in his behavior. He's saying that he is love itself. In his very nature, in his very essence, in his being, he is love. His character is love. Which sounds great, but what does it mean, by the way? By the way, I believe that there's a whole world asking a question about that. Thus, our series in the fall is going to be titled, God is Love? Question mark. When we look around and we read the news, we we watch the things that we see, we, we, we experience... Is this the world that a God would create? A loving God? If God is love, look at the world. By the way, bring people to that. They need to hear it. But God apparently is love. He's not just loving or lovely. He is love. So now the question remains, what does that mean? 
what is love? And I know there's a smart aleck or two who can be like, well, love is God. We just, I know that, <laughs> okay. But when it says that God is love, what is love? What does it mean? Does it mean that he's emotional? That he's really fond of people? What does it mean? Well, let's study it out. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Appropriately enough, it's the love chapter where we get our definition of love. By the way, this is a powerful sermon. You got the definition of sin, the definition of God, and the definition of love. Whew, we're cutting it down to brass tacks. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul expounds on what love is, starting with verse 4. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Okay? So love takes its time. It's kind. Love does not envy. What does envy mean? Jealous. You want stuff that other people have. He's like, oh, I want that for me, right? Love does not do that. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Which are all kind of different ways of striking at the same root, right? Envy is wanting stuff for yourself. Parading yourself is that puffed up, proud of yourself. You get the center that is not focused on you. It's focused outside. In fact, it goes on in verse 5. Does not behave rudely. Does not, what? Seek its own. So think about it. If love does not seek its own, it must therefore seek what? For others. Love does not seek its own. It seeks for others. Now, let's put the pieces together. God is love. And love is the principle of putting others ahead of yourself, seeking for their good instead of your own. Others before you. So if God is love, in his very essence, in his very nature, in his very being, if God is love, and love is the giving of yourself for others, what must you have in order for God to be love? Others. If God were simply an absolute rigid singularity, an individual in the most extreme sense of the word, one, then he could not be love. Now, he could create something, because he's all-powerful, sure, okay, and then he could start to love it, and he could be loving, and he could be beautiful and lovely, but to be love in his very essence if love is the putting of others ahead of yourself, there must be others upon whom to confer that love. Thus God must be, and this is so fascinating why the Bible over and over introduces God as plural. Let us. God was with God and he was God. And, and in fact, if you go back to Genesis, you think about it. God says, let us make man in our image. And he makes male and female a loving relationship. And then what's their first command? What's his first command? Be fruitful and multiply. Make more. When God introduces himself to humanity, it's not as a rigid singularity. It's as a family who cares for each other and looks out for each other and puts the other first. How much of our Christianity is self-centered? I've struggled with this lately. Even in our presentations of heaven, don't you want to go to heaven because you're going to get to do it and you're going to get to and you. But if love is the principle of putting others first, 
shouldn't everything we do be primarily focused on doing the betterment of others instead of for ourselves? I mean, I think about it when we come to witnessing the church. By the way, I have a, I'm going to have a brief parenthetical. I never get to be part of the personal ministry section, but I have a pulpit, so I'm just going to talk. Um, it's like it dawned on me, when do I ever get a chance to say something? <laughs> oh, um, A few Sabbaths ago, I went and did this outreach program in the afternoon, did the door-to-door, and I, and I, change, up the, I change up the canvas from time to time. I'm not a real stick to the scripter. I don't do well, as you notice. <laughs> um, but I feel more comfortable just kind of talking. And uh, I'll try to make it short. This, this one lady I walked up to, well, she walked up to me, and she saw me wandering through the neighborhood, and she kept looking at me weird, and, and she came up to me, and then she got really close, and she was like, no, and she was disappointed. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, can I help you? And she's like, I thought you were the landlord. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. And I said, I'm just the guy passing out Bible study. Would you like to have a Bible study? No. Okay, fine. So I went around my thing. Later, as I was coming back down the street to go home, that same lady was in the, in the street talking with another lady, a younger lady, a, a single mom, apparently, I didn't know, but had a child there. And I knew they were talking about me because they kept like... And looking back, you know, and it finally got awkward enough that I was just like, hi, <laughs> I, I know you. And she was like, I was just telling her the story of how I thought you were the landlord. And it was, uh, I was like, okay. And I said, nope, I'm just the Bible study guy. And this is the second lady. I was like, Do you, would you like a Bible study? I'm just giving them out. They're free, which is not really the most professional canvas. You know, it's like, here, take one of these. And she was like, and I said, we can, we can drop them off or we can come to your home and study with you. What would you like? Come on, you know you want a Bible. And then I started, you know you want a Bible study. Come on. <laughs> And she's like, yeah, I would like that. I like both of them, in home. And, and, and I said, sure. I, I kind of didn't see that coming. So <laughs> I gave her one. I was like, sure. And we set up an appointment to come back. Praise the Lord. Uh, Emily and I went back, and, and, and we studied with this lady and, and laid out, you know, that, that God actually knows the future, and he demonstrates it in the Word. went through Daniel chapter 2. Do you know he, he foretold Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome? And we're here, and Jesus is going to come. And she's like, oh, that's so exciting. I've been in the church. I never knew that. I've never studied that. And she's looking forward to number two. By the way, she's probably going to be bringing her child to vacation Bible school. Please be praying for that. But there's something about your Christian experience that takes it to a whole nother level when you get off of yourself. When you give to others, if it's cold, give them a blanket. If they need shoes, that kind of thing. But also the bread of life. There are people who don't know that God is love. Who don't know the truths that give us such peace. And if, if we and our peacefulness are content, then something is wrong. We must be like God who is love. John says, if you're like God, then you will love because God is love. And love is the principle. Look through it all throughout Scripture, all through the New Testament. Love is the principle of looking for others first. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. I'm gonna, we just read that one. First, John chapter 3 and verse 16. You probably don't even have to look that one up, but if you want to, it's still there. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. Love does something. It gives. For God so loved the world that he gave. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul talks about the Son of God who gave himself for me. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? And he gave himself for her. 
Love is the giving of yourself in deference for others. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 defines God as our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Love requires others and is manifested in giving of yourself for others. So if God is love, which the Bible plainly states that he is, more than once says God is love, then within the very nature of God himself is required others. It's required to have others. You do not get this picture in faiths that do not see God as a family. In faiths that see God as a rigid singularity, they emphasize the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, which are all good attributes. But there are faiths in this world, literally billions of people who do not have a picture of a God who is love. We have a message, folks. We have a message. By the way, I'm going to close with this thought, and it's going to be unresolved, and I want you to be uh, challenged and not frustrated. We'll resolve it in three weeks. (laughs) Okay? I told Emily with a story, like, whenever they're cutting the bread, and like, do you know what was inside the bread? No, it's like, come back next week, you know. (laughs) You got to do that. So I'm going to leave you wanting more, you know. But... I want, you, I, want to, I want to plant a seed of thought in your mind. Next Sabbath, uh, Jim Kowalski is going to do a fantastic job speaking about God the Father, that person of the Godhead. F- after that, I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about Mrs. White's writings and the Trinity and Adventist history and some interesting things. How did our personal, how did our faith develop in that thinking? And then we're going to look at Jesus Christ, that second person of the Trinity, that Godhead, and the divinity of Christ. And I want you to think about this concept as we prepare for that message. And that is this, that without a plurality in the Godhead, without others, without a Trinity concept, there could be no response to Satan's accusations against God. The great controversy would not be resolvable if God were not working in a harmonious plural. Okay? Our salvation would not be possible without the Trinity. This is not just an optional thing. This is a core of who God is and what it means, and I want you to wrestle with how is that the case? Why is that the deal? What were Satan's accusations, and how did God, with the Trinity, answer them? You have to be here for it. But today, I want us to focus on the fact that from Genesis to Revelation and all points in between, God is shown as a plural, as a family, a God who is love, and we are called to love others to the same proportion. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In fact, that's our closing song, number 73. Holy, holy, holy. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.